Is this week three already? I think, I think so. Is... Yeah. I yeah, well, that's the part yeah, we didn't find. Are time. you are you ready, Dan, for your for your bit? As ready as I'll ever be. Not gonna guarantee it'll be good. Well, we we always have a delete. I'm sure it'll be great. And we have Kevin's the the amazing editor, right? So, um, so how about we just do that first, and then we'll go back to our um smoothing out editing talking about what we're going to be doing the next while titles maybe okay all right um and any any ideas for a catchy title for this one i mean it's, it's wetland 101 something but how to get yourself wet <laughs> we wet our plants again wet and furious yeah that's a good name <laughs> title for <over> sex sorry <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Um, yeah, I don't know. Still have to think about that. All right. Moving on. Go, Dan, go. Okay. So, yeah, uh, this week's episode, we're going to talk about wetlands and why they're cool and important. Because uh, especially with all this climate change stuff that is happening, um, temperatures are getting warmer. Uh, more droughts are happening. Not good for the planet. And that's why we need to save <laughs> All our wetlands, because uh, they provide a lot for us, even if you might not think of them that way. But anyway, so let's just jump right into it. Bloop, bloop, so bloop. what is a wetland? Do you guys know? It's uh, kind of wet, <laughs> and there's water in it. Sometimes there's water in it, sometimes there's no water in it, sometimes it's dry, sometimes it's wet. But in general, even when it's dry, it's still a little bit wet. Yeah. <laughs> when it's dry, it's wet. That's, that's a revelation. Oh my god. Okay. And these guys are I mean, scientists and have degrees. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, no. Uh, Kevin <laughs> Kevin basically kind of described it all. Like, I mean, simply it, um, wetlands are just lands that are wet. <laughs> simply put. <laughs> uh, and if you want to get more detailed, yeah, we could say like wetlands are kind of where the water and the land converge uh, kind of broadly. And then, you know, it can kind of get you can get into more details of like, well, there's the riparian area, which is kind of that transitional zone between a wetland and kind of a more terrestrial type area, which is kind of part of the wetland itself. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's kind of a whole other side thing, even though it is kind of part of it. There is a whole, I was just going to say, there is a whole diversity of types of wetlands though, right? Like different ecosystems, like, uh, oh, yeah. you could, so you could have uh, peat, peat bogs or you could have bogs swamps you could even to some extent treat kind of well a lake i wouldn't say it's really a wetland but it kind of works in kind of all together basically anything with water kind of all works side by side in some form or another but yeah like i mean bogs swamps marshes those are kind of all different kinds of uh wetlands mm -hmm. and i guess the uh the difference between a well i mean there's water bodies in general but i think think the wetland part of it that we're focusing on 
and correct me if I'm wrong, isn't that just where there's still access to the soil and the plants? So generally it's considered either the edge of a water body or an all out wetter uh, land area versus a lake or something of that would be generally considered larger, deeper. So at some point you're, you're not, you're going to be too deep for the plants to grow anymore, I guess. Right. Right. Yeah. Because um, like, I think simply put, you could almost just say, think of a pond uh, would kind of be kind of a good example of, well, that's probably the closest to how you would think of a wetland. And then, yeah, anything kind of bigger that, well, I mean, there are wetlands that are bigger than kind of your generic ponds, but anyways, like, yeah, I mean, I think you said it well, Don, like when you start getting to lakes and where the water is going like pretty far deep down and there's not really maybe not much vegetation on the outside and there might be a whole bunch of things happening underneath the water surface but if it's um if it's like super deep yeah you kind of classify it more as like a lake or something else than a wetland because a wetland it's kind of yeah it's a little more shallow and has all these other things happening at the same time too but yeah uh so yeah like wetlands like yeah they kind of work as uh ecotones uh and an ecotone is kind of just a transitional region between two biological communities so in this case it's kind of the transition zone between a terrestrial community and then an aquatic uh, ecosystem i guess is the better term to use um cool. so yeah that's kind of what wetlands are um and then yeah they kind of vary uh mainly because or they they vary greatly mainly due to their hydrology so basically where their water is coming from and how much of it are there how much uh water they're getting and then kind of ties it with nutrients too how much nutrients are actually kind of within these systems um and actually that can sometimes cause issues if you don't have a healthy wetland system which i'll kind of get into a little bit later but uh yeah basically it's mainly focused on the hydrology and kind of where the water is coming from how much you're getting of it and all these kind of factors tied in with that um and yeah with that it, you kind of defy with the hydrology within a wetland you you kind of get wetlands defined by how long the water lasts in these kind of areas so you can get stuff like temporary wetlands so you know they're shallow uh, usually flooded for a short time after a large rainfall or snow melt that's kind of yeah temporary wetlands semi-permanent wetlands are a little more deep have water throughout the majority of the year but of course like they can dry out if you know they have a few years of drought yeah, like a dry uh, occurring yeah exactly and then you have your permanent wetlands that are kind of the largest and the deepest uh, areas uh, with water kept basically year round. So that's kind of broadly kind of three different kinds of uh, wetlands you can kind of classify uh, them as. And of course, again, you know, we can get into, well, there's wetlands, but then there's, you know, there's a marsh and a swamp and a bog and a fen and all and that stuff. on the log in the bottom of the sea. Yeah. Um, I think yeah. the last <laughs> point is not really to get into all the different kinds of the uh, wetland. No, areas. like, I mean, we can do that at some point later, but yeah, I mean, if people are interested, but this is kind of just generic. Cause... But um, um, I, I'm guessing, are you going to get into, um, I guess, what what is the value of creating more wetland? Like, why would people do it? Yeah, like, I mean, I'm kind of taking the stance of more just kind of wetlands in nature. But I mean, I, I will talk about uh, kind of the importance of wetlands in general. And then I think after I'm kind of done kind of describing their importance, then I think you know, if you either you two kind of and myself too, we can kind of talk about, well, let's look at the construction side of it, because I didn't really get into that, even though 
that's probably <laughs> I probably should have put a little more into oh. kind of how you constructed and make one in your own yard. But I almost thought of that as being kind of its own, yes. even its own topic and its own podcast episode. So this is kind of just more. Anyways, I will talk about it. And if we want to talk more about constructed wetlands in your yard on a small scale or a little bit larger in a constructed stormwater management pond within an urban center, we can talk about that too for a little bit too, if we want. But yeah, uh, so yeah, kind of continuing on. Uh, so yeah, wetlands kind of characterized by three factors. So yeah, you got your hydrology, which I've talked about, which is kind of your main controlling factor uh, when determining kind of wetland health and just kind of what, what kind of wetland you have in general. Uh, then you kind of have hydric soil. So that's, you know, soils that lack uh, lack any oxygen because they're just always um, flooded, essentially, or saturated, I guess would be a better word. Um, and then you got hydro hydrophytic vegetation. So Ooh, simply water loving. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to try. Uh, but yeah, just, just water loving species. So that's vegetation that can survive in low oxygen environments. Uh, and it's not just kind of typical plants you think of, but it can also include stuff like algae, bacteria, fungi, and, you know, small micro, yeah, microorganisms and all those kind of little critters and stuff like that. So, yeah, with uh, wetland, kind of their connections to their overall scheme of kind of ecosystems and nature in general, uh, wetlands kind of help to create links within a watershed system. They link stuff like the groundwater table, the surface waters. Uh, and other wetlands and water bodies uh, ties in with soil moisture, you know, being able to uh, kind of collect a whole bunch of water and being able to kind of disperse that a little bit and slowly drain it out versus uh, kind of just pooling in one place and not going anywhere or just kind of going everywhere super quickly and then uh, dries up quickly if it doesn't get into the ground fast enough. If you have kind of hotter temperatures and you get a lot of uh, evaporation occurring uh, and then actually kind of just describe that and then like kind of weather patterns so that ties in with evaporation transpiration and evapotranspiration to kind of include all that that could be um a... and then yeah hmm? <laughs> that can be a song transpiration transpiration yeah <laughs> kevin can spin that into a, a nice rap for you yes yeah give them all the easy work for editing i will i will <laughs> when i'm editing i'll cut out all the stuff i don't want yes and then i'll turn that into a rap Oh, you can you can just cut out my whole my whole <laughs> section. I'd be fine with oh, that. Oh, get a little bit of a <laughs> rip, rip, rip. Going on yeah. <laughs> Sorry, off the beat. Uh, Back to more. <laughs> so yeah, with uh, leaving wetlands, uh, kind of where they are, not uh, getting rid of them, and the, again, this ties more to you know, kind of big industry that's either developing a land that has a whole bunch of wetlands on it or you kind of have a farmer field that has wetlands and kind of gets uh might get drained so that they can have more cropland and and i just like to kind of stress that leaving wetlands are really important because they do help to reduce you know flooding events uh stabilize stream flow so you don't have as much like water gushing through an area and creating all this kind of erosion and stuff like that it kind of again it helps to like it acts like a sponge so it's just kind of slowly collecting all this rainwater and then slowly kind of releasing it again to uh, different parts of uh, a watershed system. Uh, and then also kind of helps with crop production because you're not, um, again, you're kind of controlling how much water you have uh, kind of in the area versus, again, if you got rid of that and just kind of put more cropland, you don't really have that sink of water anymore um, and all the benefits that it provides. 
And then also it just kind of improves water quality with, again, being able to control the water flow a little bit more. And also just with all the vegetation that's around it, it helps with filtering stuff out and whatnot. And I'll talk a little bit more about it uh, in a sec. Uh, so yeah, so there's function. So kind of going into a different section, kind of the functions and services that wetlands provide. So just kind of knocking off some terms um, to kind of let you know um, with the health of wetland, it's kind of the, I describe it kind of as the ability of a wetland to conduct various key ecological functions. And then those functions are kind of just measurable characteristics of uh, said wetland. So that can be primary productivity, uh, things like nutrient cycling, food chains and water budgets. And I know I'm throwing a lot of these scientific terms at you, but I will describe it a little bit in more layman's terms in a bit. Um, and then uh, wetlands also uh, with service services, uh, those are like the benefits produced from the functions for uh, both individuals and society as a whole and wildlife too. So stuff like timber harvest, uh, having clean water, uh, wildlife habitat and uh, reproduction uh, areas, and then just uh, aesthetics in general, just being able to uh, look at a pretty landscape with wetlands and everything that's within it. Yeah, yeah, so importance of wetlands. uh, One thing is uh, creating stability within it or within the ecosystem, I guess. Uh, With wetlands, they can provide deep-rooted vegetation uh, spread across like the shorelines and kind of the riparian areas, which helps to stabilize uh, said areas. Uh, And the vegetation helps to slow water down, reducing how much sediment is kind of carried uh, with the water and then how much erosion of the uh, erosion of kind of these shorelines uh, and riparian areas is uh, occurring. So that kind of helps uh, with stability. So and then also with wetlands, uh, it provides biodiversity. So a lot of wildlife, so from fish and invertebrates to amphibians to mammals and birds, uh, they rely on these shore or these wetlands for reproduction, for reproduction, uh, foraging, and hiding from predators. And a lot of the endangered and rare wildlife uh, need these wetlands and kind of these ecosystems uh, for survival. Like it's kind of <laughs> kind of the, like a lot of these things are very a lot of these uh, endangered and rare wildlife like they're very particular in kind of the. Uh, habitat that they require and sometimes wetlands are kind of the only suitable uh, kind of spot for that Um, it also is with biodiversity it's a good indicator to measure because it also helps with kind of measuring uh, if a wetland is uh, a being uh, stable and also b if it's healthy because if you're having all this different kind of biodiversity of wildlife fish and vertebrates um, it goes to show that well a lot of the (laughs) a lot of this wildlife is you know, like in the spot where we're be able to function and live. Therefore, you know, it's probably a good place to uh, continue to do that versus if there's not a lot of wildlife, then, well, uh, there's probably something wrong there because maybe you have too much nutrients or too much sediment in the, or not enough vegetation and, you know, wildlife just doesn't really want to be there or can't function there. Um, and then, uh, yeah, a healthy ecosystem leads to a more resilient one, 
for all to use it. And that's for both wildlife and humans. So I think there's a lot of benefits there with uh, what wetlands do for biodiversity. Uh, so yeah, another uh, importance of wetlands is providing uh, water quality. So with healthy uh, riparian area and areas and uh, with the vegetation within them, it helps to reduce, again, how much sediment and nutrient runoff uh, into the water bodies and helps with uptake and trapping of, uh, of the sediment and the nutrients uh, within its own root system. So having a healthy amount of vegetation in these areas helps to do all that. And with the vegetation um, that has to absorb the excess nutrients uh, removed from the shorelines can lead to other organisms filling in that role. So that's why, again, it's important to have as much vegetation that's, you know, healthy, stable, and meant to be in these areas. Because if you kind of lose that for whatever reason, you know, you can get a whole bunch of nutrient runoff into the water bodies. And you can get stuff like algae blooms, which I don't think anybody really likes because it causes so many uh, issues for us. Like, you know, I mean, everybody loves the smell of algae blooms, right? Mm. Um, <laughs> Smells like a cesspool. And, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, everybody loves that. And you love swimming in it. Uh, yeah, like it reduces the aesthetics. Like nobody really wants to be looking at, you know, a nice, <laughs> nice wetland or water body. And then you got a big algae bloom in it and get those nice smells and lovely sights to see uh and then yeah it's kind of hard to operate a lot of recreational equipment so like if you decide you want to you know go fishing or boating or whatever algae doesn't algae blooms don't help with that either so uh that's why vegetation uh, (laughs) yeah if you're fishing for algae then i guess yeah you you enjoy it then but (laughs) um but yeah, having a healthy vegetated uh, riparian area and healthy wetlands helps to make uh, water use more pleasant uh, for us, uh, and it lowers water treatment costs. Like if you're looking at a constructed wetland uh, scenario uh, with all the uh, functions that it provides and keeps aquatic organisms habitats uh, clear of like silt and again like excess nutrients that could lead to um, algae blooms and cause some problems for said organisms. Uh, so yeah, there's that. Another big thing is the water storage, uh, which I've kind of talked about. So yeah, like in a broad sense, wetland, uh, wetlands and shores act as sponges, essentially. Uh, they properly regulate water above and below ground, uh, being able to kind of capture all that water and then kind of slowly divvy out and filter out uh, water down into the Uh, groundwater table which um, everybody remembers their water cycle diagrams right and how all that works don't have to go into too much detail about that i don't think and then yeah with uh, shorelines with the healthy vegetation uh, they're better equipped to resist the effects of drought and provide enough water uh, for human wildlife needs so um, yeah that's kind of the quick and dirty version of kind of a intro to wetlands like i don't want to get into too much detail or get into too much sciencey details about uh, all the intricate parts of wetlands but oh and there's so many spin-offs we can, we can do with like oh yeah on a wetland top like it's a very in-depth uh, conversation piece for sure it's just people uh, don't give wetlands the credit they're due agreed 
Um, so yeah, I don't know if you guys want to, you know, touch upon anything I've said, or if you kind of want to talk maybe just a little bit on how some of this stuff can be applied to constructed wetlands, either, yeah, like in your yards or uh, kind of on a commercial scale for, you know, stormwater management ponds and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Kevin, do you have something to say or are you um, there? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's fine. You don't have to say anything. <laughs> I think Dan has covered pretty much everything. Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, I could... You know, it's pretty good. I don't need to add uh, anything. I have something. <laughs> That's <say>. why we are. Uh... <laughs> All right, go ahead, Don. Well, no, I just um, I guess I'm in a in a slightly different realm than you guys because I didn't get my degrees and everything in school for this kind of thing. So I guess I can look at it from a different perspective and maybe having the combined two two different views um maybe hopefully will be helpful for our listeners. But so I noticed a few things. Um, One, so you're talking about this natural water filtration. Um, I understand, yes, the the plants within the system draw a lot of the the toxins or possibly some of the excess nitrogen if there's fertilizer runoff or these kind of things um, or Mm -hmm. from livestock like manure, that kind of stuff. But are there... Um, I guess, do you think there's commercial applications that we could be looking into as far as, um, I've heard people talking about biofuels and, um, again, the whole filtration for possibly water treatment plants, that kind of thing. Can plants possibly be used for that kind of stuff? I've heard people talking about willows or different, uh, carrots, which is sedges. Um, do you know more about how that could possibly happen uh, like my experiences uh doing constructive wetlands like in an urban setting and you know planning out how to make all these different kind of plant communities uh get established on a constructive wetland and so for a commercial application i think that would be kind of a good example mm-hmm. um when you're putting these plants in and they're collecting you know all the you know, heavy metals, pesticides, if you are applying anything nearby, nitrogen and phosphorus and all these kind of nutrients, it's kind of just working. It's, it's a system that is (laughs) filtering out all this stuff and collecting it all. So it doesn't go into the greater, I I always think, (laughs) I can't think of the, yeah, I always can't think of the right word for it, but like basically. Sorry, I was saying going out to the wide open spaces. I don't know what the the scientific term would be, but um, containing it. So it's not going to the greater environment. Yeah. Yes, and it just it just acts as a natural like water filtration system. So if you're looking at it in an urban setting, you're it's not going to be a like you know one thing that fixes like it's going to fix everything and collect you know 100 percent of any toxics or excess nutrients that you get in your water. But it does uh, help significantly with collecting all that, and so that it doesn't go directly into the water you know, whatever water treatment plant that it's going through and through the whole sewer system, you have a little bit of a buffer between, um, you know, nutrient runoff and eventually getting into the whole urban water system. Mm -hmm. Um, So kind of broadly speaking there, I think that's 
kind of the benefits that helps there. And then kind of applying that more to maybe a yard or something. Uh, like, I think a lot of people probably have heard of just swales in general, but uh, with bioswales, the idea is that you're kind of applying a more uh, naturalized or regenerative uh, landscaping mindset, I guess, to uh, a swale. Um, and you're putting all these kind of native plants that are ideal for collecting all these pollutants and stuff like that, as well as directing where the water is going to go. And with those kind yeah. of two things happening, you're creating, again, just a natural filtration system um, that, again, is putting less stress on the water treatment system as a whole um, for these urban centers. Now, looking at that, kind of applying that, again, a more, more used to the urban setting, but looking at um, not agriculture, uh, rural setting like something on like a acreage or like a farmer's field um that's where i don't have as much experience but well i'm i'm just i'm getting the impression that um number one it's a combination effect so one plant or one thing that you do in a wetland isn't going to be the the save all solve all for the problems however the more diverse you can either create a man-made system or add to an existing system the better equipped it can be to handle, um, I guess, more of an influx of these toxins or runoff or whatever to clear up um, the water body. So whether it can be re-released back into its uh, environment right there or, you know, filtered into something else. Um, but uh, it will it'll work better as a kind of a combination effort. But um, I did read that there are certain species that seem to have more of affinity for drawing out certain heavy metals or toxins that they may be more inclined to use in certain plants like willow or some of the carex. Um, right. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. Like, I mean, there's, there's going to be some species that like to yeah pick up the heavy metals versus uh, ones that maybe are more uh, uh, phosphorus or nitrogen loving. <laughs> If that mm -hmm. makes sense. So that's kind of where you get, if we're again, going back to maybe an urban and, and an acreage or a farmland too, but like looking at an urban setting as well, uh, applying this kind of idea, um, that's where you kind of get into, you know, if you kind of talk to me and Kevin, if we're going to set up, uh, do your yard. And when it comes to the planning stage, these are kind of the things that we like to talk about. If, you know, you decide you want to do a wetland, um, this is where we would kind of say, okay, what kind of plants do we want to put in here and kind of determine, okay, it seems like you're complaining that, you know, you have a very saline um, kind of spot in your yard. It just gets, you know, you just get a lot of salt runoff from, you know, your roof or wherever. Um, this is where we kind of plan into, okay, these are kind of the species that help to kind of reduce that a lot. Because, yeah, you can't just say, oh, this plant has been in a wetland, therefore it's going to kind of collect everything and it's like now you kind of have to, this is where we kind of look into more detail of okay what plants work best for your situation yeah well this is where having having information from the from the landowner or or you know wherever this water body is um can help um somebody like you guys go in there and make a, a better assessment of all right in this particular situation the specific situation now we can put in these 
different species and they will probably be most suited to to help in this situation versus something else completely random that's not going to do much at all right mm -hmm. oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. so cool and then i guess the other thing too is um nothing ever truly goes away so these plants if they if they were used for filtration now let's say you've got the heavy metals or the excess nitrogen or whatever now gathering in these plants um then i've also heard of uh people talking about well now you can harvest those materials for what we call quote unquote biofuel so you could actually burn it and use it as a source of fuel um which then you know that's it gives a, a place for those um i guess the toxins to go so that the the plant life can keep regenerating in that wetland and you can keep drawing off the the toxins and using it for another function so it's actually multi-purposeful mm -hmm. because it, it would get to a point that you know yeah if you get too much toxins or whatever nutrients that are getting to your uh, system at some point there's just going to be excess of it and yeah again it's just going to get back to bleaching too much but yeah if you can find these other methods of being able to utilize that like uh biofuels then i think that helps and then yeah if you come back and you know usually wetlands i think they'll just <laughs> regenerate on their own if it's healthy enough and established enough and you're not over harvesting mm -hmm. but even if not then this is kind of where you know good practices like being able to reseed or replant those plants that you harvested and keep those sites healthy helps yeah, basically. in the long run. And I don't Mon think it's a lot of, it. it's not too much work. Like, I mean, well, I mean, like it depends how you look at it, but I don't think it's you do it right, a it lot of work to, yeah. yeah, like it should be pretty low maintenance in the sense that like the plants are doing most of the work of filtering uptake of all the toxins. And then you kind of come in if you want to harvest it you harvest it and then yeah you plant to reseed that spot or you let it grow if there's enough there that you didn't take too much up yeah so. it basically becomes a regenerative landscape right <laughs> um yes cool now one other point that came to my mind is i know uh, and don't get me wrong the trees are definitely important uh we yes i do believe we need to plant a lot more trees out there help with the carbon sequestration everything else but i think um, the wetlands are really underrated in this area because um, trees are very visual and aesthetically pleasing. So it's what the average person will gravitate to if they think, well, what can I do to help the environment? I'll plant a tree, right? It's been going on for a long time. Everybody does it now. Companies are investing money into uh, either foreign places or locally. Hey, we're going to do a community tree planting, blah, 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 right? But what I found yeah. is that um in particular are um peat bogs actually are disappearing three times faster than the forests and they sequester a lot of carbon so um maybe to make people aware that that actually ties into one of the news topics i found oh cool well we'll bring that we can might as well do that right right after this but basically what i was thinking is um, for people to be aware that, hey, maybe you live on swampier land and it's not suited for growing trees, um, but definitely please don't go draining it and rescaping it and everything else. Um, at the very least, save a portion of your wetlands because it's really important globally and for our local environments 
um, to sequester carbon and also like Dan was saying, to uh, be a regulator for the water flow. Um, because the more of these areas we have, instead of these drastic fluctuations we're getting where one area is getting droughts and one area is getting flooded uh, over time, it actually helps balance so that water is released gradually and absorbed gradually and you're not having all these crazy influx periods of um, end of the world type scenarios. <laughs> yeah. So... And oh, and the other thing too is um, with the peatlands, they're they're only three percent of the world's surface, but they store two times as much carbon as forests do. But approximately thirty-five percent of wetlands have been lost to whether you know farmland drainage or um, urbanization, whatever, since nineteen seventy. So it hasn't. Overall, in the grand scheme of things, it has not taken that long to decimate a high percentage of our wetlands. So I encourage everybody, you know, uh, either help create or preserve existing wetlands, educate other people about wetlands, whatever you can do. And there's all kinds of different wetlands out there. So there's there's a flavor of wetland for everybody, I say. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> it's like salad. People may think they don't like salad, but there's a salad dressing that'll make it good for anybody. Yeah, so uh, I don't know if you guys have anything else to add to that, or if, Dan, you want to bring up that article that you were talking about? Well, I'll do the article quick, and then, yeah, because I have two, but there's one specifically about Pete that you were just describing. And, and I, it's going to be, a, it's gonna be a, lot of, a lot of repeat of what you just said, but um, yeah, I'll just go right into it. So yeah, um, what was it? It was out of the University of... Exeter, I'm probably saying that wrong, but what does that mean? Uh, in the UK, yeah, in the UK, and then also um, with uh, Texas A&M uh, University um, in Texas. <laughs> uh, the study, yeah, no surprising. Um, uh, the study examined peat losses over human history and predicts that these will be amplified in the future. I mean, I think we've all been kind of hearing that with everything that's going on but peatlands i think are kind of the ones that people don't really think about like because again as you said don it's more trees that people think of oh yeah they're they're important that's why everybody plants you know a whole bunch as many as they can and you know you have all these kind of events and parties and stuff for tree planting mm -hmm. and peatlands i think <laughs> they well, store more carbon but a, a the trees. Not consider, it's not as glamorous, right? It's all about like, the, yeah. consider the tree. The tree is the Hollywood of the plant world. And the peat bog is like, uh, you know, the, the garbage man or something. It's sad. They're really important <laughs> and they should be more valued than they are. You know? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they're saying in the study that, yeah, peatlands are expected to shift from an overall sink. So uh, being able to absorb and sequester carbon uh to a source this century, primary due to human impacts across the tropics. And the study warns that more than 100 billion tons of carbon could be released by 2100, um, although uncertainties remain large. So, I mean, yeah, if we kind of continue at this rate that we're at with uh, burning greenhouse gases and, you know, kind of getting rid of all these peatlands, mm -hmm. um, it could cause a lot of carbon release uh in the next uh, few decades, which 
yeah, is kind of alarming when you kind of think about <laughs> how yeah. much carbon is stored and how much could be released in our lifetime and our kids' lifetime and grandkids. And yeah, but according to those redneaks, they will say, oh, I don't give a f- I'll be dead by 2100. Yeah. <laughs> And, yeah, it's like, live and that, yeah, that's kind of the sad of thing. It's, yeah, it's like you have to sometimes <laughs> you try to convince these people of the importance of it, and some people are just not going to care. Um, anyways, yeah, so and yeah, they say here that like peatlands are currently excluded from the main Earth system models used for climate change projections. Some something the researchers say must be urgently addressed. So that I didn't really go into too much, uh, didn't like dive in. A little too much into what all that kind of meant but i mean just kind of taking it from just a broad just kind of reading it once that kind of just yeah made it seem like again peatlands aren't really addressed and considered as important as other ecosystems and other species uh for specifically looking at uh, carbon sequestration and being able to absorb all that and maintain it or keep it well and the thing is this uh, with the the peat bogs, there's multiple ways that they're getting depleted, right? Like, so peat's getting harvested. Um, I hate to say it because I'm a grower, but in the in the gardening industry, those bales of peat moss that you're getting are generally harvested from these peat bogs. And um, I'm not saying to just quit using peat altogether but you can uh, look for the source of where the peat's coming from and see if it's been harvested sustainably because you can, if, if they do at a certain rate, a certain percentage, and then let the peat bog regenerate, it is possible. But if you just keep, keep digging, keep digging, um, you're going to run out of peat and then you're going to have a big hole there and it's just going to be a mess. Um, so that's one thing. And then the other is of course, when they're just bulldozing these, peat bogs and filling them in to either urbanize them or um, you know somebody decides oh this is a great place to drill for oil or whatever it might be right um, but I think we have to do more uh, I guess think think of a peat bog more like a tree so that people are going to get more active and, and uh, save peat bogs maybe help reestablish I mean they take uh, millions of years to get to a certain size and get to a regenerative state but preserve the ones that are out there and there's nothing wrong with if you've got some mushy boggy land hey well maybe you can do a little bit to create your own little bog Mm -hmm. and yeah i think just kind of to sum up the rest of the article it just kind of talks about how yeah if we continue on this trend we're gonna you know lose what is it yeah between from 2020 to 2100 will lose about 104 billion tons mm-hmm. uh, of carbon. So that's, yeah, <laughs> that's a lot to think about. But then they were saying how, you know, places like the Amazon or the Congo, where they have a lot of uh, peat land that's, you know, intact and hasn't really been touched much. Um, there should be policies in place to keep it that way because, you know, as soon as there's economic incentives for, people to you know harvest peat you know countries and whoever are gonna you know jump be first in line to (laughs) collect all that so they're just saying it's very important to kind of plan out and find uh 
how can we create policies that offer more uh, sustainable alternatives to just kind of harvesting and not doing it in a sustainable manner. So, yeah, so it wasn't the most, it's not the most uplifting thing, but it's just kind of just kind of there to show, you know, peatlands are important. <laughs> well, and it's a, a whole other podcast, but talking about um, instead of the, the policies to encourage people to grab onto the money train, there's plenty of um, on the opposite side of the spectrum, uh, different things that governments and organizations can do to encourage regenerative landscaping. Uh, they're starting to do this with, with farmers and agriculture in certain areas to say, hey, if you guys actually start reclaiming your land and getting it back to a regenerating state and a more natural state, will actually give you incentives for that versus the depleting and destroying and grabbing them. It's it's basically about get instead of getting the money for right now, having the money for down the road. And I know what you're saying about how a lot of the younger people are living for the here and now and they're not even thinking about tomorrow. But maybe some of these changes will give them a future and give them a reason to think about the future instead of just giving up and saying, well, this is all there is. And so what's the point? You know, because that's quite sad. Yeah. Anyway, on a uh, maybe happier note, what's your other article or, or your other points that you may have? What was it? Smart researchers design portable de- device for fast detection of plant stress. So kind of thought it was kind of cool that uh, this group out of Sing It, like it was a, it's a side thing of MIT, like it's MIT, but like it's uh, within a Singapore MIT Alliance for Research and Technology or SMART is the acronym for that. Uh, but basically they created a uh, like a leaf clip sensor that would allow for rapid diagnosis of nutrient deficiency in plants, enabling farmers to maximize crop yield in a sustainable way. So yeah, you attach a little clip on a plant and being able to determine, okay, it's not getting enough, you know, nitrogen or phosphorus or whatever nutrients that are required and being able to kind of plan out, okay, well, it seems like this kind of area of the crop is, you know, lacking this nutrient and then maybe this other crop or other area of this of a different crop has a different nutrient deficiency. So just being able to plan that kind of stuff out with, uh, technology, I think, is kind of cool, and being able oh, to. Yeah. I think tech and regenerative have to go hand in hand. I mean, we can't escape technology, and it can really help us, right? We just got to use it in the right way. I saw another one similar, but they were using drones, and the drones would scan the crops, and based on the spectrums that they were getting, they could determine which nutrients the plants needed. So that was pretty cool too. And it's it's actually getting to the point where the sci-fi is almost matching up with the the movies and the TV shows we're seeing. It's becoming more like real life now. It's kind of freaky, but also very exciting. But again, it's using it for the right application. So I think if we can use it to help um, optimize our growing for our plants and help us figure out where there's inconsistencies in the natural environment, where we can uh, improve on things, I think that's great. But for, you know, creating machinery that's going to just destroy our environments and um, strip everything out and suck it dry, maybe not so good. Agreed. That concludes another episode of Regenerative Landscape. Remember to leave a comment and subscribe. Also, visit fescue.ca and mmgardens.ca. Now enjoy our soundtrack. Regenerative, regenerative.
Escapes.